picking back up in chapter number 9. Uh, if you remember, in last week's study, we saw how Daniel was looking. Somehow, he, in his hands, he had a copy of the, Jeremiah's letter uh, to the captives. Probably, I'm guessing he had a copy of the whole prophecy that Jeremiah wrote. And how he got that, we don't know. He might have even had the original, but... But uh, he did have that copy in his hand, and, and upon reading some of those prophecies, he realized that the Lord had promised the Israelites that after 70 years, they would be able to return back to the promised land. And so Daniel began to pray for God to do exactly that. Now, you know, we raised the question last week, why did he pray? I mean, if God put it in his word, that 70 years after they went into captivity that they would return to the land, they were going to return to the land. So why did he pray? Well, we learned last week that prayer is a paradox. God is going to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it, but he acts upon the prayers of the saints. And we're going to see that, we're going to see that played out here in this text tonight, that, that the Lord acted on Daniel's prayer, even though it was the Lord's will and he had prophesied the return of the Israelites some 70 years earlier. But that's how God works. And, and, and I, I, I bring that back up tonight because I, I know of so many cases of people who tell me that, you know, I just don't want you know, God's going to do what he's going to do anyway. So, so, you know, I don't really need to pray about this. That's not true. I mean, we should all be praying for the Lord to return right now. We should all be praying for our nation. We should, like Daniel prayed for his nation. We should all be praying for, for good things to happen. God wants good for all of us. And so we want to pray that. And, and, and yes, God's going to do what he wants to do, and he's going to do it when he wants to do, but he acts upon the prayers of his saints. Now, you know, hopefully when we went through that first part of Daniel chapter 9, you were inspired to pray for our nation. I mean, Daniel offered up to me a model prayer for praying for the nation. It actually has changed the way I pray for the nation. In fact, I asked David after the service the other night to put that up as a special topic. We have a couple of topical sermons, and even though it's a verse-by-verse -verse study, asking him to put that up as a model prayer for America, a way to pray for America. Do you remember how he prayed? You remember how he prayed? Well, we get a summary of how he prayed in, in verse number 20. So let's just go straight to the text where we left off last time, and we'll go to verse number 20. He says... Now while I was speaking, praying, now watch how he prays. He confesses his sin. I mean, here was Daniel, maybe one of the most righteous men who ever walked this earth, and in the sight of a holy God, he realized how depraved he was. And so he began by confessing his sin. You know, that's, the, that's where all our prayers should begin. And I don't believe that you, you in what... Some people say that in order to be in fellowship with God, you have to confess your sin as if there's some kind of, it's some kind of sacrament. It's not. But what we're doing when we're confessing our sin, we're really confessing the fact that, Lord, you are holy and we are not. And we really have no right to ask you to help our country. Our country doesn't deserve to be saved. Our country deserves to be destroyed. But, Lord, if we all got what we deserved, and that's what, the way Daniel looked at this, then I deserve to be destroyed. 
And so Daniel begins by confessing the fact that he's a sinner, first of all, and that he deserves destruction. So he begins by praying, he confesses it by sin, and the sin of my people. So he confessed the sin of the people of Israel. And man, they had really sinned against the Lord. And their greatest sin was the fact that they had gone into this gross idolatry and they were even sacrificing their children to the God of Molech and the God of Asherah. And so uh, they had sinned greatly and they had profaned the temple and they profaned the land and uh, they deserved to, to be sent into captivity. And then he says, And presenting my supplications before the Lord for the holy mountain of my God. Now what's he talking about when he's talking about the holy mountain of God? He's talking about Jerusalem and he's talking about the temple. Supplications for the temple. Lord, remember what he said in his prayer? Lord, he said, Lord, for your glory, for the sake of your temple, restore Israel back to the land. Not because we deserve it. Uh, we're sinners. But for, for your glory, restore Israel back to the land. Because, uh, because of what the Jews had done, the holy mountain in Jerusalem had been run over by the Gentiles, and it was God's temple, and it had been made desolate, and Daniel prays for it to be restored so that God can be honored. Now, when you begin to pray like that, supernatural things are going to happen in your life. And that's exactly what happens in Daniel's life. I mean, when you begin to pray for needs other than your own needs, when you begin to pray for your nation, that's really a good thing. You might very well be praying on your knees one night for the nation and an angel appear. And that's exactly what happened to Daniel. Look at, look at verse number 21. Yes, he's saying, yes, you're right. Supernatural things do happen. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, back in a previous vision, be, uh, beginning being caused to fly swiftly, reach me about the time of the evening offering. Now, that's an interesting description of Gabriel. First of all, he describes him as a man. So Gabriel must have looked like a man, but he must have been like Superman because he could fly. Now, did Gabriel have wings? I think he did have wings, or he does have wings. No, did. I mean, this is the same Gabriel that... that uh, told Mary she was going to bear, bear Jesus. This is the same Gabriel who told Zacharias he was going to have a son, John the Baptist. This is, so he's flying around all the time. He might show up here tonight, and we'll all be passing out. <laughs> because he's going to be glowing, and he's going to look like a man. He's going to have features of a man, but he can fly very swiftly, very swiftly. I believe he has wings because of the description of a lot of the angels in the Bible, they do have wings. And so, you know, but I also believe that in our glorified bodies, we're going to be able to fly very swiftly. You ever have those dreams where you're, you're flying? I have those all the time. And, and, and hey, I believe that's, that's exactly what we're going to be able to do. We're going to be able to do it very swiftly. So he has this vision and Gabriel appears and in verse number 22 he says and he informed me and talked to me and said oh Daniel I have come forth to give you skill to understand I want you to watch verse number 23 watch this real carefully I know you guys are tired and I know this is this is going to be tough to hang on to but man this is one of the greatest it is the greatest prophecy in the Bible if if it proves the Bible to be the, the, 
the perfect word of God. And there's no other passage that proves that like this, this passage that we're going to look at tonight. It's one of the most exciting passages in the Bible. So if I see you passing out and sleeping when we're looking at this passage, I'm going to wonder about you. So I know you're tired, but hang in there with me. Hang in there with me. This is going to get good if you'll hang in there. And says, he, look at what he says in verse number 23. He says, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. Wow. Did you catch that? Now, some people interpret that, that the command went out for, for me to come see you. That's not what he's talking about at all. I don't believe that at all. At the beginning of your, your supplications, what was it Daniel praying for? He was praying for Israel to be restored to the promised land. And he says, when you begin to pray that, the Lord set the command to send Israel back into the land. And we know from the date of this passage and the date of when the command went out for, for the people to return, it, we're right there. And so the command went out from the Lord, hey, it's time to move the nation back into the land. Do you see, doesn't that excite you about prayer? That one man can move a nation back into the land? I mean, wonder what one of us sincerely praying like Daniel prayed, if we prayed that for our nation, for our school, for our neighborhood, for whatever we're involved in, if we prayed that, wonder what God could do if we, if we, if we prayed like that. The command went out, and, and I've come to you to tell you that the command went out. Your prayer's been answered. For you are greatly beloved. Why did God answer his prayer? Because you're greatly beloved. Why was Daniel greatly beloved? Because he greatly loved the Lord. If you greatly love the Lord, then you're greatly beloved by the Lord. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So he's going to, he, he, so the angel came not only to tell Daniel that his prayers had been answered, but to give Daniel skill to understand the vision that he's about to show him because, because there's something going on much more important here than just the return of Israel to the land. There's something, if Israel just returned to the land, they were going to go right back to doing what they did before. They were going to go right back into captivity again. I mean, they went into all sorts of different captivities until the Hasmonean Empire. When we went through that inner biblical period, we discussed their history a little bit. So, so, so they didn't learn their lesson, but God, it doesn't mean that God wasn't working with Israel, that he's still not working with Israel. And that's what we're going to see tonight. He's, he's always worked with Israel. And he's never given up on Israel. And so what Gabriel wanted Daniel to understand, and what the Lord wanted Daniel to understand, that something much big, there's something much bigger here going on than just the return of the Israelites to the promised land. God is working out the plan for all of history. He's working out the plan for the Messiah to come and to die for our sins. He's working out the plan, Daniel, to save you and to save your nation, not just temporarily, but for eternity. I mean, he's going to show you what a great future Israel has and what a great future the world has with the Messiah. You know, remember what James said in James chapter 1 this past Sunday, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. And the most perfect gift that we can possibly receive is Jesus Christ and his salvation. 
again, I, we're, we're about to come hang in there. You're about to come in there, come to one of the greatest, the most amazing, I believe the most amazing prophecy in the Bible. And you can take this one prophecy and you can prove that the Bible is the word of God. It's only, it's, it, it, it has to be the word of God. Because this prophecy that we're going to look at right now clearly prophesies about Jesus coming to this earth and being crucified 500 years before it actually takes place. The great evangelist Leopold Kahn began as an Orthodox rabbi, and he was studying Daniel chapter number 9. And he started studying, and he started doing some calculations, and he realized that the time of the coming of the Messiah had already passed. The Messiah had come and he had been cut off. And so he started studying history and Jewish history and looking everywhere for who this Messiah might be. And he didn't have to look far because on, in some of the Bibles, there's a, something called the New Testament. And he began to read the New Testament. And then he re, began to read Isaiah. And he began to match all these things together. And he realized from Daniel chapter 9 that there, this had to be Jesus. Because there's no other man that has, has, that, that has fit that bill in history. And history, is, according to this prophecy, he's already come and gone. And he's going to come back again. But, but, uh, and, and he realized that. Here's a Jew that had never looked at the New Testament, and he could see that. So let's look at the prophecy. Pick it up with me in verse uh, number 24. And you can see all of this is you know, set off almost like poetry here in, in ver beginning in verse number 24. It says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city. Now, let's stop there for a minute. What does he mean by 70 weeks? Literally, that is 70 sevenths. I mean, the word seven can mean week or it can mean any grouping of sevens. You remember how the, we were, in the Mosaic Law we were told that the land was to rest uh, one year every week. That's that same word. Well, obviously that wasn't a seven-day week. That was one year every seven years. So it's real easy to show that the word week often means a seven-day week, but it also can stand for just a seven, just a period of sevens. And so we have 70 sevens here. Now, 70 sevens, are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression. In other words, you're going to get to, you're going to, the Jews are going to be around for, for 77ths to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, what's he saying right there? Look at that again. In other words, what he's saying right here, there's 70 weeks are left until the Messiah comes to this earth to be anointed as king. To the end of sin, the sin of the Israelites, so they're, they're, they don't sin anymore because he's going to rule and reign. To the end of the sins of the world. To the end of the turmoil in Jerusalem. To bring peace and to rule in everlasting righteousness. So there's 70 sevens until his kingdom is established. Now 70 times 7 is what, all you mathematicians? 420, John, where'd you get that? 490. 400, no, John didn't say that, I'm teasing. 490. 490 what? 
490 days? Well, it can't be 490 days. We know it's a period of sevens. It can't be 40, 490 days because, because if it was 490 days, then, then that would be only about a year and a half. And we know not, that the kingdom wasn't established a year and a half after this prophecy. So we know it's not that. Well, what about, uh, what about uh, uh, 490 months? 490 months is what? About, well, 52 uh, weeks. Let's say weeks. Let's go to weeks first. How many weeks are there in a year? 52. So 490 weeks would be how many years? About nine and a half years. Well, we know nine and a half years later that didn't happen, so it can't be weeks. Well, what about months? Can it be months? How many months are there a year? Twelve. So 12 into 490 would be, anybody got a calculator? But anyway, it's, it, we know that in, in how many years is that? 12 into 490. 40 years. About 40 years. So we know that none of these things happen in 40 years. So the only thing we're left with is years. So 490 years is what we're going to have to work upon. But even then, you, you go out 490 years, and it, and it doesn't really fit. But, but we'll see how it fits here. He's going to show us how it fits. He's going to give us understanding of how it fits as we go through the rest of the prophecy and get some more detail. So let's go, let's go to the uh, next verse, verse number 25. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince comes, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. How many weeks is that? Seven and 62 added together is 69 weeks or 483 years if you multiply that times seven. You catch that? Seven weeks plus 62 weeks. And then the street, sh and the street shall be built again in the wall even in troublesome times. Now notice in verse 25, look at verse 25 carefully. He only accounts for 69 of the 70 years, and that's important. You've got to get that down. He only accounts for 69 of the 77s. These 69 sevens begin when the command to restore and build, look at the verse, Jerusalem and its walls was given. Now here's what's really cool. We actually know the date that the command God gave us that date in the Bible. We actually know the date that the command was given to go out and restore Jerusalem and the walls. It was given to who? Nehemiah by Artaxerxes. It was given to Nehemiah in the second chapter of, of Nehemiah. You can find it there. We're not going to go there. But we were told that on the 5th of Nisan, in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, the command was given for Nehemiah to take an army and a group of Jews and go back and restore the city of Jerusalem. Now, we have archaeological evidence that the reign of Artaxerxes began in 465 B.C. So 20 years into the reign of Artaxerxes would make that what year? 445 B.C. So we know that the command was given, and you want to put it on our calendar instead of the Jewish calendar, that would be March the 14th, 445 B.C. Any scholar worth his salt can calculate that for you. So that's not something that somebody's uh, forcing. That is the actual date based upon archaeological evidence and based upon what we're told in Nehemiah chapter 2, 
that the command was given for Nehemiah to go and build, uh, rebuild Jerusalem. So, so look at what it says. Therefore, understand from the going for the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince comes is a total of how many weeks? Seven weeks. What are the seven weeks? The seven weeks would be seven times seven, 49 years. That's the 49 years it took to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. Okay, and, and, and who did that? Nehemiah and Ezra went and did all of that. So, so Nehemiah is really who we're focusing on right here. And it was done in troublesome times. I mean, that fits the book of Ezra and Nehemiah perfectly. All right, so we know that there are a total of how many weeks now until Messiah comes, if you add that together. The 49 weeks, and then after the 49 weeks, there are 62 sevens. So you take the 62 sevens, and you take the, six, the seven sevens. How many sevens does that give you? 69. Take 69, multiply that times 360. A biblical year is 360 years. Multiply that times 360, and you'll come up with 173,880 days. 173,880 days. Now, we don't have time to do it tonight. But if you'll get a calendar from March the 14th, 445 B.C., and you'll go out 173,880 days, let me tell you what date you'll come up with. You'll come up to the date of April the 6th, 32 A.D., which is the day Jesus Enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Is that not absolutely amazing? And he died just a few days later. He was cut off, just as this passage says. Now, there's another way to calculate this. You can take, you can take the 173,880 days, divide it by 365 days, which is what our calendar works off of, and you'll come up with 476 and so years, and you'll come to that same date. So either way you work it, it works out exactly to the day that Jesus appeared in Jerusalem. You know, maybe give or take a day or two, but it was right around the time Jesus was cut off. What does it mean he was cut off? It means he was crucified. I mean, look at, the next, look at the next verse. And after 62 weeks, you had the 49, the, the 49 years, then you had the 62 sevens, so you had a total of uh, 483 years. After the 483 years, Messiah will be cut off, not for himself. What is that? That's the gospel. He'll die for you, Daniel, on that very day. He'll die for you. He's coming to die for you. And, the, and soon after that, the people of the prince who is to come, and the detail of this is just amazing, and it's, it's rich in prophecy knowledge. It helps you interpret the rest of the Bible, so watch me carefully. And the people of the prince who is to come. Now, who's the prince who is to come? Messiah's been cut off. So who's the people of the prince who is to come? The Antichrist. So you're going you're gonna to get a clue here of where the Antichrist comes from if you watch this carefully. 
Because he says, and soon thereafter, the people of the prince who is to come, who are those people, shall destroy the city of the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war of desolations are determined. Who came in right after Jesus was crucified? Who were the people who came in right after Jesus was crucified and destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem? Remember the Jewish rebellion? There was the Jewish rebellion after Jesus was crucified and Titus, the Roman, came in and he destroyed the city and destroyed the Jerusalem and killed uh, over a million Jews and sent the rest of them off into captivity all over the world. And they haven't been back. They haven't been back until 1949. That's when that clock started ticking again. So... He, basically what he's telling us is the people of the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, after the Messiah is cut, cut off, the Romans came and destroyed, uh, destroyed Jerusalem. And it's been trod down by the Gentiles ever since. So we have seven sevens or 49 years for the building of Zerubbabel's temple, 62 sevens till Messiah comes. So that's a total of 69 sevens. So where's the other seven? Where's the other seven? There's one seven left. One seven-year period left. And all you got to do is read the rest of Daniel and read the visions before, and you know what that seven-year period is. That's the period of the Great Tribulation. And here's where a lot of scholars have gone wrong over the years. They thought all of this stuff had passed because, because they didn't realize there was a gap. There was a gap we know as what? The church age. And we're not given the time of the gap. We know it's at least 2,000 years, but we're not given the time of the gap. Now, why aren't we given the time of the gap, Gabriel? Why don't you give us the time of the gap? Because if we knew the time of the gap, we'd know when the rapture was going to take place, and we'd know, you know, we just wait till the rapture came. God doesn't want to know us to know when the rapture is going to take place. He doesn't want us to know when the great tribulation is going to take place. He wants us to know the season and time, times of when the rapture is going to take place and man we're getting close but he doesn't want us to know that because he wants us serving him until the very time he wants returns he wants us looking up and waiting on him and longing for him until the time comes for his return but he does tell us what to look for if you want to know when that last seven years begins look at the next verse he tells us exactly when it begins verse number 27 he doesn't give us a year but he tells us how we'll know, how the world will, world will know. Then he, who's the he, the prince to come, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, for seven years. See how that fits perfectly with Revelation and the rest of prophecy? For one week, he's going to confirm the covenant. But in the middle of the week, look at what happens. He shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abominations, the desolation of abominations, shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation. What's the consummation? That's the return of Christ, which is determined, already been determined, and is poured out on the desolate. And we got to break that verse down because it's a goldmine of prophetic knowledge. I mean, look at that. It matches perfectly with the book of Revelation. I mean, let's break it down. Then he, the Antichrist, shall confirm the covenant for with many for one week. One seven-year period. 
the last seven years of the 77s, the Antichrist who is of the same people as Titus, who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. What people was that? That was the Roman people. And if you remember the vision of Daniel's, of Nebuchadnezzar's giant man, remember the vision, what were his feet made of? The last kingdom. They were made a mixture of iron and clay. So that's the revived Roman Empire. This is why I know and I don't believe it's possible for the Antichrist to be a Jew or to be a Muslim. And a lot of people are saying he's a Muslim. Every time there's something exciting going on in the world, and they say, well, that's where the Antichrist is coming from. The Antichrist is coming from a revived Roman Empire. And really, that's what we saw when we were looking in, in Daniel chapter 7 at that second beast or those other beasts, those four beasts. That there's this turmoil, there's stirring in heaven and all this turmoil takes place. And then from that turmoil rises up a new kingdom. One like never before. And that's the last, that's the feet and toes of, the, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's golden vision. Of the giant and the golden vision. So, so we know that's a revived Roman Empire. And in the middle of the seven years, he's going to make a peace treaty. With who? With Israel. And probably, I, I, you, you, it, this does not have to happen. And I'm not going to get into why I, I can show you through the Greek and Hebrew. It doesn't have to happen. But probably, he is going to give them permission to rebuild the temple. And they will uh, bring sacrifices and offerings again to the temple. That does not have to happen. It doesn't have to happen. But, but a lot of people believe it, it, it does. And a lot of people believe it will happen. But in the middle of the three and a half years, or 1,290 days, after that peace treaty is made, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. Now, what's he talking about there? He's talking about the second abomination of desolations. In chapter 8, we looked at the first. We were seeing a vision with the first abomination of desolations, and it was a type of that coming abomination of desolations, where the Antichrist will come into the holy place, declare himself to be God, and he will demand that he be worshipped. And this is the de desolation that Jesus referred to in the Olivet Discourse. Go with me a minute over to Matthew. Over to Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, and listen to what Jesus has to say. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, chapter 4, verse 15, chapter 24, verse 15, chapter 24, verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the Daniel the prophet, you think maybe Jesus believed this was a prophecy about his coming? You think he, he didn't believe that this was a prophecy about the great tribulation? I mean, he quotes it. He says, from Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Whoever reads this, let him understand. If you've been listening tonight, you're one of the ones who understand this. You've been given God's word. You've been given the wisdom. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the United States flee to Mexico. He doesn't say that either. I'm not going to be here. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of the house and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant 
and to those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Now, he's obviously talking to Jews here, isn't he? For where, where are we? Hey, we're gone. He's gone. For then there shall be great tribulation, such has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall there ever be. And it's going to last for three and one half years. Three and one half years. And that's why when you hear people talking about the great tribulation, this terrible time that begins as if it begins in those first three and a half years, that's not the terrible time. The terrible time is the last three and a half years. A period of destruction like this earth has never seen or never will see, and the earth will be made desolate by the Antichrist. Even until the consummation, look at that verse again back in Daniel, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate, the one who causes the desolation on the Antichrist. What's the consummation? The consummation is the second coming of Jesus Christ. When by his word he destroys the Antichrist and his army. You understand what you've been given here in this great prophecy in chapter number 9? You've been given God's master plan for the last days. It's right there. I mean, the last days for Daniel begin when? When he received the prophecy. The last days for me and you. We're way to the other side of this. I mean, we're past the cross, past when the Messiah was cut off. We're over 2,000 years, or we're 2,000 years past that. Israel's back in the land. That had to happen for this prophecy, this last seven years to be fulfilled, this prophecy about the last seven years to be fulfilled. And the next thing that has to happen on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. Be on the Feast of Trumpets so you don't get excited about tonight. I don't think it's going to happen. And then the Antichrist will be revealed. You won't be around here to see the Antichrist. He's probably, I'd say probably he's walking this earth right now. And then he's gonna, you're going to know that the great tribulations begin in these last seven years, the gap where the church is over. If tomorrow we read about him making a seven-year covenant uh, with the Antichrist, we're going to become mid-tribbers at that point because <laughs> we haven't been raptured. <laughs> so we'll change our theology really fast and say that the rapture happens at the mid-tribulation. But I don't believe it does. I believe it happens before the seven-year period begins. So when that peace treaty is made, and man, it's just, it's, it's just like reading the news right now. I mean, the fact that every, all these countries are being, the hooks are being put in their jaws and they've been brought into place. And Israel's almost isolated by itself. And there's rumors of wars between these great powers that we talked about in chapter 7. And those powers go to war and there's nuclear bombs thrown around and then all of a sudden they're going to say, we've got to stop this madness. We're going to have to have this peace treaty. 
But before that happens, we're going to get our call. And what are we going to be doing in those seven years? We're going to be at a wedding called the Wedding Supper of the Lamb. Where are we going to be? A place called the New Jerusalem, the heavenly city. God's already prepared it. I mean, it's, it's going to be something beyond your wildest imagination. And we're going to be married to Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate our relationship with Jesus Christ. We're going to be his children forever, his brothers and sisters forever, his friends forever. What a great prophecy, right? I, I forgot to pass these out, but if you would want one of these when you leave, John, maybe you can pass them out real quick as we finish up. Uh, it's, there's the calculations there, so, man, you want to, you want to, you want to uh, butt heads with somebody sometimes? I mean, uh, and show them how true the Bible is? Take those calculations and just show them how the date of Christ coming in is, is predicted there. It would have made it easier on you if I'd passed that out as we went over it, but I was afraid you'd look at that the rest of the time. But, but anyway, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We, what, a, what great news that you passed on to Daniel, and through Daniel you passed it on to us. The great news that, that Messiah would come, die for us, not for his sins, but for our sins. And Lord, then the church age would begin, and then we're waiting on your return now. What, what great news that we know, Lord, that all of these things are predicted precisely to the day in your word. And so we, do, we just can relax in the fact that we know that, that the rest of this is going to come true. If the first part of it came true to the very day, the last part of it's going to come true. We know that you're going to rapture us out of here. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're going to take us out of here before the wrath comes. And, Lord, we're going to spend those seven years with you in ultimate bliss. We just thank you for the promises we're given in your word. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.